You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Uh, my name is Peter Maravellis, and on behalf of City Lights Booksellers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter in place. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, forums throughout the month of September and into the fall. Uh, we're happy to announce that City Lights has finally reopened its doors to the public. Following uh, San Francisco Health Department uh, guidelines, we aim to make our reopening as safe as possible for all of you and our workers. So please do come and visit us. Uh, you'll be able to once again browse our stacks. Our business hours are seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. So we've worked very hard to transform the store. The entrance is now on the Broadway side of the building. It's a 271 Columbus. The original entrance is now an exit only. So we do encourage everyone, please do wear a mask while visiting. We're trying to keep it safe for everyone. So as many of you know, uh, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's seminal Pocket Poet series. Uh, we publish poetry, literature and translation, and nonfiction books that are informed by a very progressive political outlook. We have new titles out from David Barsamian, from Stan Cox, the former poet laureate of the United States, Juan Felipe Herrera. Also, new poetry from Uki Naduka and uh, Sophia Dahlin. So if you'd like to learn more about the books that we publish, as well as the books that we carry, we have an awful lot on our shelves that you really won't be able to find elsewhere, um, as well as our upcoming events. So please visit us at our website, www.citylights.com. And you can also keep up on our activities on social media. We have a presence on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, you name it, we're there. Um, you may also subscribe to our newsletter and receive a weekly update on uh, new releases as well as all our upcoming events. So, so we are delighted to have with us tonight Jenny Bott, uh, celebrating the release of her new fiction collection titled Each of Us Killers, published by the wonderful up-and-coming small press 7.13 Books. Uh, they're doing some really, really wonderful work, and uh, please visit their website. Uh, some wonderful fiction coming out of them, um, really someone to look forward to. So uh, Jenny Bott is a writer, a literary translator, and literary critic. She is the host of the Desi Books podcast. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in various venues in the United States, UK, and India. Uh, these include NPR, The Washington Post, Electric Literature, The Atlantic, BBC Culture, and many, many others. Her fiction has been nominated for Pushcart Prizes and the uh, 2017 Best American Short Stories. Um, she was a finalist for the 2017 uh, Best of the Net Anthology as well, having lived and worked her way around India, England, Germany, Scotland, and various parts of the United States. She now makes her home in Dallas, Texas, from where she is beaming out tonight. So joining her in conversation is Debbie Laskar, she is the author of The Atlas of Reds and Blues, winner of the seventh annual Crook's Corner Book Prize in 2020 for the best debut novel set in the South. Also winner of the 2020 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature sponsored by the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association, uh, as well as other numerous awards and honors. Uh, the novel was named by the Washington Post as one of the 50 best books of 2019. So Ms. Laskar's work has appeared in Poem a Day, uh, Indian Express, and Crab Orchard Reviews. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net, and is an alumni of both the Op-Ed Project and Vona, among others. So in 2017, uh, Finishing Line Press published two poetry chapbooks by her, uh, a native of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She now makes her home in California with her family. It is such a great pleasure to have both of you here with us, albeit virtually. Welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Peter. It's, it's just, um, I lived in the Bay Area for seven years and I, City Lights was my, you know, place to go. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to do this book launch here with City Lights and with Debbie. Um, so, yes. Well, um, so let's get started. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I wanted to uh, 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 have you read, but before I wanted to just ask you a, um, a couple of writing questions as, a, as one writer to the other. Um, what, um, 
you know, um, what, what was the germ, the seed that, that made you want to uh, write these stories and, and, and see them come together as a whole? Well, so um, the story, the collection centers on working lives and um, I wanted to foreground work uh, our workplace and how our identities are shaped by the work we do and how we navigate, you know, the fault lines of gender and class and caste and ethnicity and race. And, you know, but the truth is I didn't actually set out, you know, I didn't start this collection when I started writing the individual stories. I didn't think, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I honestly didn't even think that this was the overriding or the uh, unifying theme because I just started writing those short stories and started publishing, you know, sending them out to literary magazines to get them published. And then when I eventually felt like I had enough for a collection, mm -hmm. I started to sort of send them out, you know, querying agents and editors. And even then, I didn't initially, I never positioned the collection as about working lives, even though it was, that was the case, all the stories were, I just positioned them as, you know, here's my collection. And I remember, you know, one or two people uh, responded with, you know, usually collections are better if they're organized around a theme. And I'm thinking, how do I do that? How do I do that? And then Laura Vandenberg, who is an amazing short story writer, she suddenly did this Twitter thread uh, I think it was in 2018, it might have been 2018, where she just, she wrote about how she uh, organized, and I still have a link to that, so I'm, I'm happy to share it later with folks on Twitter, but she did a, a thread about how she organizes her short story collections. And, oh, I, and it just, something clicked. And I was like, oh, let me go try. And then I did, and I was like, okay, well, that's the theme. And then that's how I then repositioned and then started querying so initially, it wasn't that it was originally meant for that, but it just happened that, you know, I'd been, I, I, I was writing about what was a preoccupation for me, and then it just happened that all the stories had that same preoccupation, so. Wow, so would you say um, many of the stories are more recent, or do they, have you, have you been writing them for a while, and they seem to fit, or... Well, I started, so um, I've been writing short stories for a long time, but these particular ones in this collection, um, I started them, I would say, late, uh, mid to late 2015. Oh, wow. So in that, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I did, I, I, I had moved back to India for that period of time because I couldn't afford, I was in, I'd left California, you know, I couldn't afford to live off my savings in California, as you can imagine. Um, and so I had, um, I had moved back uh, to India just for a few, um, just initially a couple of years. And um, what happened was that um, it, in 2014, a new government had come into power in India, the, the Modi government. And I think what happened, you know, he had promised, one of his main campaign promises was that they were going to create a lot of new jobs and it was going to be, the, the, the campaign slogan was good days. We're going to bring the good days back and we're going to have a lot of jobs. And of course, what happened was once they came into power, it wasn't as easy as they probably thought. And so what happened was that the jobs weren't materializing and there was, you know, more funda religious fundamentalism, more, com you know, more communal uh, riots and things. And, all of that factored into these stories because while I was still writing about work, I was writing about those particular challenges that I was seeing, you know, related to work in the folks who were around me then at the time. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. And um, so can you tell me a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about the title story um, that I have to say that was one of my favorite pieces in this and and of course it it came last, so it was it was a lovely you know it was a lovely way to end yeah um, the collection. But can you tell us a little bit about how how you how you came to that? Well, so that story is based on um, a real life situation that happened in the state of Gujarat. Now Gujarat is on the western coast of India, and um, what had happened was that these. Um, lower caste. So in India, there is a caste system, right? It's very deeply entrenched. And, and some folks will know about that. 
And there is this caste um, known as the untouchable or the Dalit caste. And usually they're the ones who do all the menial tasks in the community, right? They'll do the cleaning and, you know, in the rural areas, if there are dead animals, they'll be the ones who are taking those away and, you know, skinning the carcasses and that sort of thing. Now, what happened was it just started with something really, really quite basic, which was that um, a, a video a clip started to make the rounds on WhatsApp and it showed four young Dalit men tied to the front of a uh, SUV van being whipped mm. by these upper caste men. And turned out we didn't know initially why it was. And then we found out in the news and it was all over because then there were riots and everything. And it turned out they were being whipped because they were suspected of having killed a cow. And the cow is a sacred animal, of course, in India. And they had been caught skinning the cow. And, but they were being accused of, you know, having killed it to skin it, to get its skin and, you know, and, and all of that. And so they were being whipped and that video went around and they maintained that, no, we didn't kill the cow. It was a dead cow and we were just skinning it. Anyways, so that became this huge deal and it turned into something really terrible where we weren't getting the true story in, in the media. And so the story, Each of Us Killers, is uh, where I've fictionalized where a reporter, a journalist, goes from a city to one of these little villages where you know there's been a death related to this incident and he's trying to get the real story and that's what that title story is about he's trying to understand what happened and the community that he's discussing it with they've sort of closed ranks a little bit because they don't want the outsider interference they they feel like they've already had enough you know, to deal with. And so that's what that title story is about. Yeah, no, it was lovely. It was a really well-written and um, beautifully realized piece. And I, I was really excited that there was a title story, you know, because yeah. sometimes the title isn't actually mentioned in, in, in a book. And so yeah. that was, um, that was one of my favorites. And um, so I, uh, I, I guess I would love for you to read something that um, if if you um, if there's something that you're particularly uh, interested in reading today, sure, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to. Thank you, and um, I, I won't read from the title story because that one is, you know, I just I'd rather just let people come to it um, sure. themselves. But I'll read from um, I'll read a little bit from a story that's called Mango Season, okay. and just very quickly set the stage for that one. Um, Right around the time when I started writing this story in particular, there were a lot of essays coming out in, you know, places like Granta and LA Review of Books and The Guardian and different places, you know, saying that Indian fiction in English, um, that there are these tropes and stereotypes that are being put in by South Asian or Indian writers to pander to white readers and um, exoticize the story. And so the, it was, you know, oh, well, you know, mangoes and saris and spices and, and Bollywood, you know, these things, you shouldn't put them into, into a, uh, a story because, you know, or in monsoons, and you shouldn't put them in because that's just pandering to the white gaze. And I was like, well, you know, it could be exotic too a non-South Asian person, but, but for a South Asian person, mangoes and saris and these things are pretty normal. <laughs> you know, they're not exotic. So um, what I wanted to try and do, I thought, well, I'm just going to be a little subversive. I am going to write a story that has all these tropes in it, but I'm going to make sure that they're essential to the story, that they're not there as embellishment or, you know, to exoticize anything and so that was my attempt and we'll see if it um, was a success so i'll start just read a couple pages from that Great. mango season the alfonso is the king of all mangoes and the mango is the king of all fruits this is what ruffy's mother had always told him each year when mango season came around yet Ruffy could count 
on both hands the number of mangoes he had ever eaten in his 19 years, and none at all since she had died three years ago. This evening, at Azad Charrasta, Rafi bought two of the freshest smelling yellow-red Alfonsos. In the past week, he had spotted hawkers displaying greater quantities of several varieties. At 40 rupees each, they were far too expensive, and he took his time choosing them, looking them all over for blemishes and pressing them for ripeness. Now, he had hardly any money left for his evening meal. A varapao and a cup of adrak chai at the, at the street near the bus stop are not sufficient fare after a hard day's work in the sari department of Madhuri collections during wedding season. As he swung onto the steps of the BESD bus, one hand protecting his wallet from pickpockets and the other holding the overhead rail, Rafi thought he could have, perhaps, begged the Sabji for some advance pay for a good dinner, maybe a large onion uttapam with spicy steaming sambar, ice-cold sugarcane juice, and a crunchy pan to finish. But along with that thought, he saw the man's dour, good-chewing face and put them both out of his mind quickly. His feet stung through the little holes in his shoe soles, and the back of his brown polyester shirt clung wet with perspiration. Quick as he could, he sat next to a man who looked to be middle-aged, with his balding head buried in the latest film fare. The pages were deeply wrinkled, stained, and sticking together in places. A sour, clammy odor of humanity roiled through the bus. Everybody had the same expression of wanting to be anywhere else in the world but there, whether they were sitting or standing or anxiously trying to edge around the person closest to them. Rafi looked out of the window at the teeming and heaving hawker carts, so lush and rich in their colors and smells that even the loud, passionate, customary buy-sell arguments could not do justice. Glancing further up, he read the ever-present billboards with his usual careful attention. The first proclaimed, this time is Modi's time, and right below it, Gidnar, my chai, my time. A combination which always made him cheer inwardly for the former tea seller and would-be prime minister whose somber face appeared alongside. The next was a new film, promising Queen. Everything in life happens for the good. Even, he thought, with a skinny heroine and no hero. And finally, there was bharatmatrimony.com. The right, the right words could get you the perfect match, as the perfectly smiling couple in wedding finery proved. The man beside him flipped his magazine pages earnestly, smiling and chuckling in a silent, shoulder-shrugging he-he-he that Ruffy detested. Stealing quick glances, he saw it was an article about a glamorous celebrity couple who was pictured in various poses in a sprawling palace-like home. Ruffy's drenched shirt now stuck to the foul-smelling plastic upholstery, and he leaned back tiredly, giving in. Through his half-closed eyes, the many bodies ahead of him seemed to resolve into a single coiled snake-like being. The thought that he would need to push through it to get off at his stop started an ache at, in the back of his head. I'll just leave it there with two pages. Oh, that was great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing that. And as you can see from all the, the claps, the applause, <laughs> they, they really did too. So, um, so let's, you know, I think there's some writers um, um, in our audience. So um, can you t speak a little bit about um, your writing process and, and um, if you um, if you are uh, a routine person or or a person who indulges in outline or 
if you are uh, uh, one of those people who um, kind of uh, uncovers things as the, as they write? Oh, I'm definitely an outline person. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, I'm definitely, a, I need a structure. I need a scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens, I mean, the initial inspiration for a story can come from anything. It could be an image, a song, a, a news headline. It could be anything, right? But once I have that, you know, just like I was saying with each of us killers, it was this real life story. But then I have to sit down and, you know, to some extent, I have to work out what I want the arc of the story to be. Because without that, I don't, I, I don't feel enough interest for myself. It's like I have to see a little bit of the road ahead. Not, not fully, but I have to see a little. So I definitely I prefer to outline. And um, during that initial process, I sort of figure out who's going to be telling the story, right? You know, who's, whose voice it will be and whose point of view. So that's enough for me to get started then. So have you ever found, um, I know in, in my, in a couple of the times that I have uh, written um, shorter pieces, um, sometimes I found that I'm, I'm writing in the wrong point of view and, um, and it takes me a while to find the, the correct um, what, or the appropriate, um, uh, you know, point of view or tense or, um, and um, has that happened to you? Have, have you, have you experienced that at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not with this story, the story was pretty clear to me, right. but um, I struggled quite a bit with the two stories that bookend the collection. Okay. And um, which is, you know, the title story, Each of Us Killers, which is kind of this um, collective second person sort of point of view. And then the first one is Return to India, which is also set uh, on a real life incident, but it, it, has, it has this polyphony of voices. So we've got multiple, you know, people. It's kind of sort of like an, a, an interview, you know, being taken, uh, being done of, you know, various um, people in the workplace. And I hadn't initially started with either of those stories that way. Um, and and with, with Return to India, for example, you know, which was set uh, or inspired by the 2017 uh, murder of an Indian techie engineer, uh, Srinivas Kochibotla in Kansas. You know, he worked for Motorola, walked into a bar one evening with a friend uh, and this older army, retired army person thought they were Middle Eastern and shot them or shot at them. And then Srinivas passed away, you know, and he died from that. And I remember that playing out in the news, you know, CNN, NBC, everywhere. And just because I think it was the shock of how it just suddenly, you know, erupted. Um, and there were so many well-meaning people that uh, were giving statements Mm-hmm. you know, in news interviews, and, and you're a journalist, so I think you'll, you'll get this, Debbie, because, you know, the, the journalists were going around asking, you know, asking his co-workers, you know, so, you know what, what was it like, what was Srinivas like, and tell, tell us a little bit about him. And so you were getting all these viewpoints, and it was interesting for me to see and listen or read from their perspective how they viewed him. This, this person who was now no longer alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly he wasn't there to really speak up for what his life had been like. He was there on a work permit. He and his wife were trying to get pregnant, but they weren't really sure if they were even going to make their home in the U.S. They didn't know. Did they, were, would they be able to stay? They didn't even know that yet. And so they were, they were still in, those, um, in, those, in that phase. And I felt like, you know, most of those people that were being that they were talking to were, you know, obviously white. And they'd never had to deal with this tenuous uh, arrangement that most first generation immigrants have um, with their work permit situation. And I don't think they really understood what life must have been like for these two people who had come from India and tried to make a home there in, in this, you know, part of Kansas. 
Sure. And so, so when I initially started writing the story, I, I tried writing it from the police officer's point of view. Mm-hmm. I tried writing it from the um, wife's point of view. Uh, I tried writing it from um, the uh, killer's point of view. <laughs> you know, I just tried different. And then I thought, I, I just can't. I can't do it from any one person's point of view because there are too many pieces of this puzzle. And so I thought, I'm just going to write it like this interview format and I'm just going to make all these co-workers give their little pieces just as if they were doing it, you know, when with the journalists. And I'm going to do it in a way that the reader then can choose to piece that puzzle together and create an impression mm-hmm. of this dead engineer. Mm-hmm. the way they see it based on this all these pieces you know so that one took a while because of me trying a lot of different <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I mean I think that's sort of the pleasure and 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 pain of of writing right you have to kind of do a lot of trial and error um yeah so um uh and then um how how would you um so how would you characterize like how how i know that you were talking earlier about how you um you followed laura vandenberg's uh recipe for ordering but for those of us who haven't read it would you like to tell us a little bit about um what about that process uh appealed to you and and what you learned as you were trying to put this together well so yeah what she did was i mean she she gave in that thread she gave multiple approaches really she she didn't give any one answer she says you know one of the things she does is she'll take the first page of every story mm-hmm. and she'll kind of map you know put it on a board or or maybe on the laid out on the floor and move it around because then you get a sense just that first page which is the opening of the story you've got some of the energy of the story there right you get the sense of that story on that first page and so you you can sort of look at it as a whole and kind of move things around and you start getting a sense of, you know, how is the, this whole emotional, you know, mood of this collection flowing. And so that was one uh, I recall that she t- suggested, and I did try that. Um, another one she had suggested was taking the opening sentences. Another one she said was write down, you know, the, the themes of each of them, each of the stories, the main theme. Uh, and then one or two key things about the story that you really want the reader to pick up and then figure out how you're going to arrange them. So she gave kind of multiple ways. And I tried a couple of those. Um, I also knew that one thing I wanted to do uh, is, and I read this uh, in an interview with Akhil Sharma, mm-hmm. uh, who's a, you know, an Indian American writer, and he has done novels as well as short story collections. Mm-hmm. And he said that when he receives a short story collection, whether it's to review or to blurb, one of the things he'll do is he'll go to the first one and the last one. And that gives him a good sense of whether this is a strong collection for him to kind of invest more time. And he says, and then the middle one. So he says, because sometimes I don't have time to read the whole collection. So I'll look at the first and the last and the middle. And I thought, not that I was ever dreaming of sending my work to Akhil Sharma I'm sure he wouldn't have time for it but I thought if that's how somebody's going to look at my collection I better make sure that the first and the last <laughs> yeah. you know, are pretty good so, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's terrific that's really terrific um there was a question um about um you you finished in 2015 is that correct or did you start no, I started in 20. Yeah, I started. Oh, okay. When did you finish? I finished your... in 2017. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's it's actually taken a while. Um, you know, um, how did you feel about? I mean, did you try and and um, you know, shop this this collection for a while? And yeah, um, would you like to tell us one of your stories about being rejected? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So I do want to tell that story, but before that, I want to tell a story about how Debbie and I met because it's okay. And that is that I think it was 2018 when um, I had seen just yet another one of those lists of, you know, writers under 40, you know, best young writers, you know, under 35 or whatever. It was one of those lists, I remember. And um, I remember just tweeting, you know, I would love to see lists of writers above 40. And um, it suddenly, I think it just took off for some reason. 
and a lot of people started adding to it. Hey, I'm over 40 and I've got a book coming out or I, you know, and then that was, I think how I learned of you because you tweeted back and you said, right. I'm, you know, I'm one of those writers who's got that first book, you know, debuting after 40. And um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, to your point, at, at that point in 2018, I'd spent about a year mm-hmm. querying or shopping around my book. And I'm not saying that the agents were saying, oh, you know, you're too old or anything, but I kind of got a distinct sense just based on some of the feedback that had I been one of those young breakout stars under 30 or whatever, it wouldn't have mattered that I was coming out with a short story collection. But because I wasn't, I was getting that kind of, oh, you know, your writing is really good. Um, but do you have a novel? Because, you know, it would be better to go out with a novel before a collection. And I would be like, no, sorry. I mean, this is what I have, you know. I mean, I love the short story form. Um, I love that, you know, in one book, in one thin book, you know, we can get so many different points of view and so many different stories. And yeah, that's what I like about short story collections. But um, so I had been getting that feedback. I'd shopped it around a year when I put that tweet out there, <laughs> when, yeah. you know, and then we met. And, and that tweet led to Literary Hub asking me to write a, an essay, you know, with a list for them of writers. Right. About I remember women, that. Right, women write. And so I did that. And around that same time, Sari Botton, who uh, was the editor at Longreads at the time, she also turned around and she said, is there a personal essay in that tweet? Could you make it, is, it, is there enough? Could you write an essay on it? And I said, well, I could try, <laughs> I could try. And so I did that, emerging right. as a writer. I remember and that too. Was, yeah, right. And then it was seeing that essay, because that essay also went viral. That's when my current publisher reached out to me. Oh, that's and so great. Yeah, so, that, and so that's why it's kind of all this is connected, you know, how you and I met and then this tweet and then this yeah. essay and then my publisher. And so Leland Chuck, who is just a tremendous publisher, who I had known of before because I'd been to his website and looked up and on the website, you know, there are two or three things if you go to Leland's website, uh, to 713 Books is the publisher and if you go to the website. One is Leland has a link to an essay that he himself wrote at Salon. And it was about his own writing journey. Uh, I forget what year it came out, but it's been a while. Um, But it had gone viral as well. And his journey was even more horrific. I mean, he had also left a Silicon Valley career, Mm -hmm. gone into writing full time. But he had a rare disorder of some kind where he had to get a bone marrow transplant and it wasn't even sure whether he'd make it. And I mean, it was, yeah, his essay was just like, you know, you're going to have tears in your eyes at the end of it. But the day that he found out that he was going to, that the transplant he was given was going to be okay, that was the same day he got an email from a publisher accepting his first book. Oh, wow. And An that day, was, day. <laughs> yes, it was. And that day was seven thirteen. Oh, the book. <laughs> See, what a great, what a great origin story. <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> you know. So everyone, you should go and read that salon essay. Just look for Leland Chuck and go and read that essay. So, um, but having I had read that essay, I knew of Leland, but I didn't send my manuscript. I had not till then sent my manuscript to him, even though I liked the books that he was putting out. Because on his website, he'd said something about, we are now taking submissions for 2021 or something like that. And this was in 2018. So I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't wait that long. (laughs) So I I never sent my book to him. Um, But then, as I said, he reached out after the long reads essay. And he said, you know, you've probably already got an agent or a publisher, but if not, I would love to read your um, manuscript. And I said, I, I, I did have somebody I was walking away from, a publisher. So I said, you know what, I, I would love for you to take a look. And we went from there. So that was the journey. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yes, I know. I think we all have, you know, all of us who are published or about to be, we all have that, that you know, rejection story and, and then finally the acceptance. And I think the one thing we all have in common as writers, because all of our journeys are so different, is that, you know, we didn't quit, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we actually, so many people said no, or so many people said you're not going to make it because of your age or, or your subject matter or, or, you know, whatever, right? And, and, but none of us stopped, right? And we just... Well, and that, that's, yeah, and that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm dying to hear about your, you know, how did you get your first book contract? Um, well, yeah, I sort of did it backwards. Um, so yes, I finished my um, uh, rough draft, my draft, my final draft of, of the Atlas of Reds and Blues um, at the end of 2016, right around uh, the time of the election. And then uh, for the next year, I tried really hard to sell it um, and to get an agent and I just was roundly rejected uh, for, for a full year. And then um, in, at the end of 2017, um, a friend of mine, uh, her nonfiction book was coming out. And so she asked me to come to her reading. And so I went in support of her. And this, um, this poet that I knew uh, only, uh, I mean, this woman that I knew only as a poet, I didn't know anything else about her except that I read one of her poems um, and in the New Yorker and I was really, uh, I loved it. And uh, so she, rem she remembered me um, because we had met virtually somewhere <laughs> and she said, would you, um, whatever happened to your book? And I said, Oh, you know, nothing, you know, because nobody wants this book and no one's interested. And, um, and I mean, my rejections were, you know, some of them were fairly brutal, you know, like, you know, it's that, Oh, you know, you're too old or, you know, or for to be a debut, but also, you know, something along the line, you know, I wrote a book about racism, right? So, you know, they were like, I can't believe that someone of your intellect would want to write about this. And I was like, I'm not sure whether to be really insulted or somewhat insulted or, and, you know, it's just stuff like that. But um, so anyway, she said, oh, I can't make any promises, right? But I'd love to read it. And as you know, as, as a writer, right, when someone asks you to, to, you know, when someone asks to read your work, you don't stop, right? <laughs> you know, you're like, you're ready to give it to them right then. And she was like, I'm an older person. I refuse to read on my tablet or screen. So you're gonna have to print it out for me. And so I did. And, you know, and then I didn't hear from her for months, you know, mm -hmm. and and then one thing led to another and she finally got back to me and then she passed it on to someone who passed it on to someone at counterpoint. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, and then I didn't hear from them for weeks, you know, mm -hmm. once they got to that point. So by the time I had actually gotten a phone call from them, um, you know, I was so surprised because <laughs> I just, I was very mentally prepared to sort of put the book, metaphorically speaking, back in a box and just move on, right? And so it's always, it is very, um, it is very surprising. I'm always still very surprised when I see strangers, you know, at an event that are coming to hear me or you know, speak to me about the book because um, I was 52 when the book came out and I didn't have any expectation of that. And, and so this is all lovely, but uh, a complete surprise. <laughs> yeah. So, so at that, let me just mention to everyone. So Debbie's book, which as Peter mentioned at the beginning, The Atlas of Reds and Blues, was one of my favorite reads of 2019. And um, if you haven't read it, I'm, I would really ask you, you know, hit that buy link in the chat window and please take a look at that book. It's won several awards and rightly so. It's just a beautiful book. It really is. Um, and she said it's about racism, but I will tell you, it's about a lot more. It's about motherhood. It's about working women. It's about, that. there's just so much. I mean, there are many themes that are interwoven. So please do take a look at that book if you haven't read it already. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so I wanted to go back to your short story collection. One of the pieces that I really loved was the 12 short tales of women at work. Right. Um, I just really loved it. I love the format and all these little brief glimpses that seem to encapsulate the entire life. And I wanted to know like how you did that. <laughs> and, yeah. and what was the seed or you know what was the the spark that led to that and then I would love it if you would read part a, a piece of that sure um so what Debbie's referring to is there is um 
that there's a section in the in the collection where it's just these microfiction um, stories of um, basically I would say harassment in the workplace, right? right. And what the seed was, it, it, I was trying to write. I wanted to write a story about harassment in the workplace, but I didn't want it to be the usual and kind of on the nose, predictable type. And right around that time, when I was thinking, how do I write about this? Um, Me Too happened. Oh, uh and so if anyone, if you know, all of you, whoever was on Twitter, you'll know that the hashtag Me Too, you know, there were a lot of stories coming out and it wasn't just the Harvey Weinsteins, there were stories about just average people like us, you know, who were sharing what had happened to them uh, in the workplace. And it would range from your everyday sexism to outright molestation or rape. And these people were just tweeting these, right? They were tweeting these little tweets. And some of the tweets would just, like, I was in India at the time. And so some of those, I was, I would get up and I'd be having my morning tea and it would just, like hit me I, i'd be looking at a tweet and it would just hit me like oh my gosh you know so in one tweet people were conveying so much mm-hmm. and i remember thinking is that you know that's that's a form of writing too right you know some of yeah, you heard it, a tweet absolutely. is a form of writing and so i thought let me see if i can try that can i give an entire story in you know just that tweet length and i literally wrote each one of those in a tweet Ah. I actually went to Twitter and I tried to write it in, in that, in that number of characters because I had given <laughs> myself that restriction. So I literally wrote each one of them there and then, you know, put them in my. That's, um, that's really great. No, that was really, it really reminded me. Um, I don't know if you've read on um, Lydia Davis. She's very famous yes. for her very short yeah. pieces. Right. And it really, it was, it really resonated with me as like, Oh, this is something that Lydia would write, you know? Um, I, and I, I really enjoyed it. It was, and it was also um, very different from the rest. And so, yeah. and I, and it sort of called attention to itself in this really lovely way. Um, it was very inspirational. I was like, Oh, I wonder if, you know, if we all like use these as prompts, you know, what the next sentence would be, you know, um, I, I really enjoyed that. And then, um, I really liked, um, the prize. I thought that oh. was, I, I, I thought that was one of uh, a really lovely story. And, um, and I wanted, uh, uh, a little story about, um, um, the, the story with the, um, yoga instructor, Uh, yeah um, uh, yeah, I wanted to know if there was a good backstory (laughs) to to why and then I and then I do want you to read again whatever you'd like so sure Um, so with the prize the prize is about um, this um, architect in Ahmedabad and I was actually living in Ahmedabad at the time and I was living in this um, apartment complex, uh, a society where some of the things that I describe, you know, some of those things in terms of the bribery, corruption in, in everyday business transactions, that just was normal, right? And it does happen in India where you still have to if you've lived there or, or read enough about it, you'll know is that sometimes you have to grease the wheels. You know, you have to pay your way to get things done. And that was kind of what I, what I wanted to explore, what I thought, what, you know, that people just say, oh yeah, it's India, you have to do that. But I always felt that, you know, there must have been for each one of these people, people like my own brother who lives there now and my dad who live, who still lives there, Um, there must have been that first time, right? That first time they had to make that decision Mm -hmm. to do that. And so I thought, I want to write about what is that first time for a young, idealistic, up-and-coming person who um, has to make that decision to take that route and what does that do to him as a person, as a husband, as, as a working professional? You know, so that's what that story kind of, that's how that came about. 
Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that story. I would love it if you would read um, a few of the segments from the sh 12 short tales. Okay. Okay. Meeting after all these years, she tried to recall exactly why she had left her job at that firm. He was a vice president now. Then he interrupted her while she laughed over someone else's joke with a hand rubbing her bra strap long after she had stopped smiling. Next one. You're pretty. What do you need this promotion for? Have your parents find you a rich husband. His loud laugh rang in her ears. A decade later, she visited the branch as his boss's boss. She held his gaze while handing him a severance package. His silent blink was deafening too. The flight attendant felt the brushing arm each time she went past. As the hours went by, he drank more, stared more, touched more. When she took his dinner order, his fingers slid up the front of her thighs. With the next drink order, she dropped in three sleeping pills. Yes. <laughs> well, and so some of these, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I was uh, not just, you know, making them out to be victims, right? I didn't want right. these to be victim stories. Right. No, that's terrific. Um, okay. Uh, so I think we'll um, move on to questions. Right. So um, I'm not sure if Peter's coming back. <laughs> There he is. He appeared. <laughs> Magic. So Peg has a question. Uh, she says, you said you began writing the stories back in 2015, which doesn't seem that terribly long ago for me. So I wonder if you can look back and see the origins or the seeds in anything before then. Oh, yes. I mean, I've been working at some kind of job or other since I was maybe 17, right? And I'm 48 now. And so I would say that even though I actually started writing the stories in uh, 2014 or 15, um, everything, I, my entire life before that, all the work experiences, and I've had some 20, 20 some different jobs. I haven't always worked in corporate America. I've had different kinds of jobs. So yeah, every, all those work experiences have all come together in these stories. And Prakul asks, what's next? Oh, great. Thank you, Prakul. Um, so next, I actually have a translation book coming out uh, in October. I was just told yesterday by the publisher. Um, it was going to be December, but now it's October. So I go straight from this into that, I guess. But um, it's, a, it's another uh, short story collection. Uh, it's the selected short stories of the Gujarati writer Dumketu. Dumketu means comet. And he was, a, he was considered a short story pioneer in the Gujarati language. He wrote some 600 short stories and only one or two have ever been translated into English. So this will be kind of the first book length translation of his so i'm a little nervous but a little excited and looking forward to that cool sejal asks uh, could you talk a little bit more about the ordering of the stories like more details about that okay so sejal i will definitely make sure you get that link the, the laura vandenberg link as well um but yeah i mean i think that um Though Laura had, you know, several approaches. And I think she's even got an essay somewhere. I think it might be Craft or somewhere where she wrote more about it as well. But I think in essence, what she was trying to say was, you know, you're trying to, you'd need to have some continuity and some flow to the stories. And it could be thematic. It could be, or, or if they're all the same theme, you're trying to evoke a certain mood. And, um, you know, you kind of want to leave the, the end, you know, you're leaving the reader with that sense of fullness that they've kind of got, you know, so, so they don't feel like they've, um, they've, you know, had a little bit here and a little bit, then it doesn't feel like it's just all these puzzle pieces. It feels like it's some sort of continuum, you know, there's, there's this continuum of 
ideas and themes that you've kind of strung together as a as a uh, collection. So I, I'm probably not explaining it the best, but I will make sure that I share that whole Twitter thread of Laura's on on Twitter again because I saved it. So <laughs> oh, great, that's great. So I have a, a question from Ian. What were your inspirations drawn from the time you spent in the U.S., time in India, the corporate world, the books you read? What were, so all of those? Yeah, I mean, um, that's a lot sure. of questions. Sorry, say that again, Peter. That's a, that's a lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, if, just speaking very specifically about this collection, right, there are two kinds of uh, inspirations. Um, one is the actual thematic inspiration. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, most of these stories are related to, the, you know, they're, they're about working lives. And the ones that are set in India were definitely inspired by what was going on in India around me sociopolitically at the time. The ones that are set in the US and the UK are definitely drawn on some of my own personal experiences, which have then been fictionalized. Um, so that's one kind of experience. But the other, the other kind of, sorry, inspira inspiration. I think the other inspiration that we don't often talk about is, you know, whenever we write, our writing, I feel, our writing is always in conversation with some other books or material we've read also, right? And for me, um, because I read a lot of short stories and during the time that I was writing these stories, I was also doing a short story column, a monthly short story column, where I was looking at short stories from around the world um, and, and putting them together thematically and, and you know, talking about them, analyzing them. And I did a lot of literary criticism of new short story collections that were coming out. So people often ask me, you know, which um, short story writers um, have inspired you specifically for this collection. And I would say um, one, you know, if anyone here has read Rohindan Mysteries, uh, Bombay stories, yeah. I definitely find that, you know, the mood, the ethos and some of the themes, that, you know, although he was writing about very specifically the Parsi community, which I'm not writing about, but I just, that, that social realism in a way. So that was one uh, inspiration and influence in terms of the writing. And then um, I have, there are several stories towards the end, which are um, kind of, you know, folktale-like. There's a folktale and a little bit of magical realism and in the waiting and even a little bit in mango season. And for those, I would say my inspiration was definitely more of the Gujarati writers that I read in the original Gujarati uh, growing up uh, at home, you know, my mother's books. Um, and so that was, you know, not, not um, a writer in, in English, but, you know, they were these Gujarati folk tales and, you know, the oral storytelling traditions that we have in India and that I grew up with. So I would definitely count that among one of the main inspirations. Let's see. Sonia wants to know, did you use all your jobs or how did you choose those? Can you talk a little from about from fact to fiction, even in setting? Yeah, so I did use That's a lot of my jobs. I, yeah, I, I did use a number of my jobs. I, I, although, of course, you know, for example, the prize, I've never been an architect. So that was totally made up. Um, I've never been a sari shop employee. So that was made up, but I have worked as a shop assistant, as a retail shop assistant. Uh, I've worked as a bartender. I have done yoga, in, I've taught yoga, so I've done that. So there were, I would say, there's a good mix there of jobs that I've had and jobs that I've made up. With the jobs that I've had, I didn't, I intentionally did not set them exactly where I'd done them in these stories. I mixed things up obviously a little bit so uh, but yeah I would say there's a good mix of jobs I've had and jobs that I um, made up yeah so Hazel uh, comments uh, I just checked when I interviewed you for my radio program tidings about letter writing that was in January of 2015 
in my mind, you are associated to my ongoing fascination with letter writing. So I wonder if you ever thought about writing an epistolary story. Ah, yes. Hazel, hello, and thank you for being here. And um, great question. And I think it was January 2014, because I remember I was still in Santa Clara when I spoke with you. Um, and I think that was 2014. But thank you. And I, I still remember our conversation about letters and you know how much we love letters. So I, to answer your question, I think I've got a couple of stories that I never finished and never sent out that I did write um, in a pistolary fashion. But I guess letters are so old school now, right? So people don't, um, you know, write letters as much. And I think if I ever revisit one, any one of those stories, I'll probably have to change it so that it's more, you know, text and Facebook and uh, Twitter and social media as opposed to just letters and emails, right? Because that's how we communicate now. But, though I will say, I, I've just finished writing something and I purposely... Uh, set it in the late 80s before mm. the time of cell phone yeah. and it was actually such a pleasure <laughs> not to have to like worry about like well they're not actually going to be able to figure this out in two minutes because they don't have a phone and they can't yeah. google it right and and I was it was such a pleasure to to write a story where I didn't actually have to think about any of that right um, right yeah yeah, I guess, yeah, if I set something in, back in time, I could, I would definitely still do it because I, yeah, I love letters and I love how there can be so much text and subtext and, you know, you could play a lot with letters. Yeah. Um, did you read Amer An American Marriage? I have read bits of it. I haven't finished reading it yet, but yes. yes. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah so. Um. Well, we have time for one more question. Uh, this is from Rico. Any comments to make on the responsibility slash creativity of writers in a time like this? Or more particularly in the midst of the rise of powerful fascist regimes like those of Modi and Trump, et cetera? Well, I mean, it's a great question and I'm, I'm curious to, to, to hear Debbie on this as well, but I will just say this, I think that all, all of us, whether we're writers or not, we all have our own ways of resisting or speaking out or acting. And, and, you know, everybody has their own way and that's fine. For writers, I think, you know, we choose, words are our weapons. We choose words as a way to resist. And I'm always reminded of, you know, there's the Africana author, Andre Brink. And he wrote, um, one ages ago, he wrote about how, you know, if you're in a regime where you can write the entire alphabet from A to Z, which essentially you're in this free ideal world, whatever you write, it's great, but you know, it's not going to carry the same weight as a writer who is only allowed to write from, let's say, A through F. Because then the minute that writer writes about G, his word carries, that G carries a lot more weight. And so I feel like as writers, if there's one thing we all can do is because in every community, there are things that are unspeakable, things that we can't, we don't like to talk about or speak about or write about. And if all of us as writers, whatever our identity is, whether we call ourselves Indian, American, South Asian, whatever we may call ourselves in our own communities, whatever those things are that are unspeakable, maybe we, we, you know, can use the gifts and the privileges that we have to, to talk about those and write about those. And that's when our word will carry weight. And that's me. And I mean, just to piggyback on that idea is that, you know, I feel like in this time, there are people whose voices are not heard. And, and as someone who does, you know, um, uh, utilize social media and and does have some a little bit of a platform I think it's uh, we're sort of obligated as part of the right larger writing community to amplify the 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 voices that aren't getting as much attention or that have something really important to say but aren't getting the coverage you know and it's just up to us to be a little bit more generous with our time and with our own platforms and to kind of spread 
the news uh, that other people are trying to say at this mm-hmm. time, especially. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's something we can do that doesn't take a, a lot of time, you know, but it does have a far reaching impact. Yes. Sharing our platform and sharing our, our space to, to others who have something to say. Yes, well said. I think that's that's a lovely way of, of ending the evening. I am ever grateful to both of you. Jenny, congratulations on this book launch and thank you for choosing City Lights and we're really honored. And, uh, you know, um, Debbie, you are such a wonderful interlocutor. I'm so grateful that you could be with us. Thank you. Today. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank yeah. you, Peter. I'm, I'm very grateful and honored. City Lights is an institution and... I mean, you guys are just terrific and I'm so glad you're still around and doing what you do. I'm, and, and everybody, please make sure if you're buying books, support independent bookstores like City Lights because they do a lot in the community. So please buy, you know, use the buy link and please buy the books from City Light um, because we, we need to support our independent bookstores. Thank you. So for anyone who didn't make it tonight, you know, we're going to be rebroadcasting this on YouTube, but we'll be posting it on our social media in the next few days. So uh, keep an eye out for that. So uh, look forward to seeing you all again in the near future. I hope you all have an excellent evening. Please be safe. Please be well. Uh, Read both these wonderful books that we've been posting. And uh, please take care, everyone. Take care. Congratulations, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.